Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And today, more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. Returning to the show today is Rayba Dominski. She is Chief Social Responsibility Officer of U.S. Bank and President of the U.S. Bank Foundation. We're going to talk with her about the bank's response to COVID-19, especially through their employees, and especially because the bank is headquartered only four miles away from the location where George Floyd was senselessly murdered in 2020. Obviously, the days of rage and pain in Minneapolis were extensive and profound. The bank responded thoughtfully and in great depth. I always love to quote Reba, and she said that they used data to respond to what was needed in the local community, what was needed with their employees and the feelings that they had um, being away from work for over a year. And she says a wonderful comment behind each data point is a heartbeat. I love that. And then Raven leaves one of her most important points. We need to come back to the joy, the joy of community service, the joy of being servant leaders, the joy of supporting our employees and our colleagues and our communities. And so while we have been away from the office for such a long time, we can return to the office with greater listening, with greater insights, and ways to build our teams so they can fulfill their full potential. So let's listen to our next conversation with Reba. Welcome back, Reba. Thank you so much, Carol. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you because U.S. Bank, um, on our last podcast, well, we were just diving into all the great work that you were doing, including I Loved Community Possible. And um, the company has just a long, long history and commitment to community, to diversity and inclusion um, through really making an impact. Being in Minneapolis and being such a part of the community, I know that that had a huge impact on the bank. And so what we'd like to dive into today is what was that like? How did you respond? And you've done some very um, exciting uh, additional responses. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's just talk about the day and the days that followed. And how was that? for the bank, but also how was that for you personally? Wow, Carol, you know, it's interesting. Um, It's been over a year and I am still, I just got emotional 
when you asked that question and you mentioned how close our headquarters location is to the place where George Floyd was murdered. Um, and it just, it takes me back to, to that day. Um, I was in my study where I am today. We had been, you know, uh, working from home for a couple of months. And my son, who is a freshman at college, uh, was home for the summer. And he came upstairs and I was in the middle of a call and he knocked on my study door and he said, you know, kind of came in and did the wave. And I, I took myself off camera and put myself on mute. And he said, mom, something happened. And I said, what? You know, I was thinking it was him or... And he said, um, there's a video of a black man uh, who was killed by police. And I gasped. And he said, in Minneapolis. And my heart just sunk. Um, you know, it, it, it sunk, sinks so many times. Uh, Philando Castile, you, you name the moment. But my son actually said to me, the video is making the rounds on social media. And I don't think you should watch it. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't think you can take it. I think it'll it'll break you <laughs> because of kind of the work that I do, um, how much we've been working at the bank, how everything you know we've been focused on in terms of issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so I, I tried not to watch it for a little bit. And I actually had a call with our chief diversity officer, Greg Cunningham, scheduled immediately following that interaction with my son. And when I got on the phone, I said, Greg, have you seen the video? And talked to him about it. And he said, I have to go. And he just hung up. Um, Greg is a Black man who lives, I think, two or three miles from where George Floyd was murdered. And um, so it was... I did watch the video. I, I cried through the video. I actually had to cancel a meeting because I was just uh, overcome. Uh, by the inhumanity of what I was watching and the reality that it was happening just so close, so close to where I, I live, work, and I play. And um, immediately following that, we had a series of conversations with our CEO, um, Andy Cesari, our U.S. Bank CEO. And he talked to Greg, he talked to me, we pulled in some partners. And the one thing Andy said through all of this was, I don't want just words. The words are fine. We can make a, you know, an announcement. We can talk about what we're going to do, but I want action. I want to get things done. I want to change things. And as a result of that, we announced a $116 million annual commitment to address social and economic inequities, including $100 million in additional capital to Black-owned businesses, $15 million from the U.S. Bank Foundation and what we call rebuild and transform funds that are focused on rebuilding impacted communities and addressing systems change in communities with low economic mobility, and then a million dollars in grants to Black-led community development um, financial institutions through our Community Development Corporation, or CDC. And I'm pleased to say that we have met all of those commitments. And of course, Carol, we're thinking about what more can we do and how can we bring the whole bank to address the issues of racial wealth gaps, which are 
plaguing our country have for years and have so much potential, not just from a social justice perspective, but from an economic development perspective as well. When you look at our GDP, a recent report from McKinsey said one of the smartest things we could do is to start to close some of these racial wealth gaps. So, you know, very personal, started very emotionally. And then, you know, as we always do in this business, you move quickly from the impact that these moments have on you personally to think about your team and your family and is everybody okay to then thinking, okay, I work for a major corporation with resources, human and financial. What can we do to be part of the change that we want to see and that we know needs to happen in this country? And you pivoted, or not that you pivoted, you just accelerated your previous commitments. And um, so how difficult was it to get all the leaders together and to quickly say, this is what we're going to do? You know, Carol, it wasn't that difficult. I can't believe I'm saying this because so often in corporate America, the stories are how challenging it was, how scheduling a meeting with all the senior leaders takes three weeks just to, you know, to put everybody's uh, uh, time together in one place. And it was not challenging in part because Andy, our CEO, was so clear in what he wanted to accomplish. And you know how that moves mountains, right? When you can say, right. I had a conversation with the CEO and he wants us to, you get time on calendars, you get uh, your priorities in gear because Andy said, you know, report back to me. And it wasn't report back to me in a month. It was, I want to plan and I want to plan quickly and I want to plan that's thoughtful. And you know, what's amazing is one of the, um, when, when we kind of walked Andy through our initial thinking, he was actually the one that brought us brought up access to capital, Carol. He said, I believe access to capital is one of the things that we should be prioritizing. I think it could make the most difference. And we said, that's absolutely true. And he said, okay, tell me what that looks like. And that's Great. when Greg, our chief diversity officer, and I talked to Zach Boyers, the head of our community development corporation. And we said, you know, what would increasing access to capital, $100 million to Black businesses, how could we do that? What would that look like? So with support from the CEO, we moved really quickly. And that's something that I'm very proud of. So what's the lesson? I want to, I'm gonna, instead of waiting to the end about lessons learned, I want to kind of go through this because we're going to also talk COVID. And you also have, you know, this incredible point in time with George Floyd. Um, so if a company is not as advanced as U.S. Bank, but they're begun, and then all of a sudden they have this critical crisis, what might you say they should do next you know, to, to decide what, how to act? There's a couple things I've learned from my experiences at U.S. Bank. COVID, George Floyd, these kind of pivotal moments. Even, you know, recently I'm, I was born in India and I have an enormous number of family members there. And the, the COVID crisis in India was a moment where, you know, I woke up and read the newspapers. And I, I think there's this, a series of questions that you need to ask. The first is, are you okay? Um, all of these things have this profound impact on us as people. Um, so start with, am I okay? Then next, think about your family. And your family, I don't just mean the, the people you're related to by blood. I mean the people that are in your family, the people that you work with, your friends, your loved ones. And are they okay? And then third, what am I going to do about it? 
how can I think about the resources I have at my disposal personally and then in this role that I play at the corporation to to drive the change that I want to see, that we want to see. And everybody who works in corporate America knows that it all starts with a, a strong business case and data and insights and this mix of head and heart. But for most of us in corporate America, there has to be a head component to it. There has to be some data. There has to be some information on what could something like this do to support our business, to support our employees, to support our, to support our key stakeholders. Um, but then there's also the heart component of this, which is once you've got the head engaged, you've got all these bankers and their data thinking about, okay, this is something <laughs> right. we should do. Then you pull on the heartstrings a little bit because uh, our, our chief data, our chief uh, diversity officer, Oliver, was, reminds me of this beautiful quote. Uh, he says, behind every data point is a heartbeat. Oh, that's a great quote. Isn't it fantastic? I've never heard that before. I think I might have said it first, but, but between the two of us, uh, we say it a lot. And I think that's, you know, what we're in the, in this business in corporate America, we are in the business of the head and the heart. We are in the business of data and heartbeats, but everything we do impacts real human lives for our employees, our customers, our communities. And so I would encourage everyone who's on this journey to think about those steps. Am I okay? Is my family okay? And then what can I do about it? And then quickly building that business case that's head and heart. And it doesn't have to be a perfect PowerPoint, you know, 17 pages long with appendix slides. It could just be a Word document where you just type and you say, this is what I think we need to get done. And then you start seeding it. You start socializing it with the right leaders. I think in one of your annual reports, you said covid helped you to develop new muscles around being flexible, adaptable, and agile. That's right. And that's exactly what you, what you just said. Um, and obviously, you're building off of a rich history that you totally uh, live your values. So, so that's great. Hey, I'm just curious because I was so mesmerized about Pullman. Um, how is Pullman? And you had, you know, for our listeners, can you just give a quick recap on the commitments you've made to that community? And then what happened during COVID? And then what happened post-George Floyd? Yeah, good question. So Pullman is a community um, on the south side of Chicago that has an incredibly rich history. I won't uh, bore your listeners, Carol, but look up the Pullman Porters um, to understand kind of the, the history of, of that community. Um, for over a decade, U.S. Bank has invested in that community. And the way that we've done it has not just been through foundation grants and financial investments. It's also been through incenting businesses as a bank to come to uh, to come to the Pullman community, to headquarter in the Pullman community. Method has a factory there. Walmart is there, um, and so through our our influence and leverage, we've been able to amass a lot of support for that community over the years. And I'm pleased to say that um, you know the benefits of those investments in that community are pretty palpable. The graduation rate has increased. The crime rate has decreased. So it's an example of place-based investment, right? Um, of thinking about what is a place and then what are the resources we provide across the bank to help that place do better. Um, and that's exactly what we did in, in Pullman. And 
And, you know, through the pandemic, just like any other community, uh, Pullman was pretty dramatically um, affected. But through programs like the PPP program, and I'm proud to say that across U.S. Bank uh, in 2020, we made $7.6 billion in PPP loans and approximately 80 percent of the recipients of those loans were businesses with less than 10 employees. That's a lot of the small businesses that are in Pullman-like communities. So I think um, through investments and continued support, uh, Pullman has has kind of pulled through uh, and made it through the pandemic. And we just, I want to say, Carol, it was probably three or four weeks ago, our chief uh, financial officer, Terry Dolan, was in the Pullman community celebrating the opening of the art space loft, which is uh, a space that is we've we've helped finance for artists to create and also to provide a marketplace for their wares. So the Pullman community continues to show resilience and thrive through all of the challenges that it, it faces. And U.S. Bank is there every step of the way to continue to ask the question we asked on the first day when we came to Pullman, which is how can we help? And I love the art space because the arts have gotten really gone to the bottom of the barrel in terms of being supported. And they are so important to knit a community together and to bring out its creativity. So kudos to you for doing that to really keep up the the essence of the spirit of people. Talk to us a bit about uh, returning to work. And um, we, we know that companies are re- they're taking it seriously, which is great, um, but there's no playbook about how you return to work, how you deal with people's uh, mental health, their physical health, their separating from their families, children, cats and dogs. Yeah, I will tell you separation from my dog, Lila, is one of the things I'm the most worried about because <laughs> I've gotten used to having her as my uh, constant companion as I work from home. You know, at U.S. Bank, we recently announced our return to office plan. Um, and you you say that you can't create a playbook. Well, Carol, you know banks well enough and you know that we have to have a playbook for everything. So I will <laughs> tell you, we have an incredible team of leaders okay. who actually put together a playbook. Now, the challenging thing about the playbook is it was not published and laminated. It was actually a playbook <laughs> that changed minute by minute, day by day, as the CDC's guidelines changed. State by state, if you think about it, you know, all the states that we're in, every state uh, had their own guidelines. Uh, many cities had their own guidelines. So, you know, one of the very things complex. that we said was it's very complex and we will create a playbook, but we are going to be flexible. And what we really started with was listening to our employees, doing pulse surveys. Um, just for me, I, you know, I changed, I, I started doing weekly stand ups with my team and weekly meetings instead of these kind of quarterly PowerPoint heavy, deck heavy meetings where, you know, the focus was really on listening and just how are you? And, you know, the challenges that I heard through the pandemic were enormous. Um, There were, you know, challenges around public transportation, uh, health challenges, caregivers who are taking care of those who who could dramatically be uh, influenced by COVID. Um, Parents, I mean, working parents, I, I have a woman on my team who has three little ones and watching her navigate and listening to her navigate the pandemic, having kids at home, kids in these learning pods, then kids returning to school, and then the summer hits and air conditioning goes out and summer camps are canceled. I mean, it is just enormously complex. So through all of it, we have really prioritized at U.S. Bank listening to our employees and being flexible in our approach. And of course, putting the safety and security of our employees first above 
everything else. Um, we did recently announce our return to office plans and our managing committee, uh, our top leaders, they are in their offices um, as of the first week of June. There's a group of 250 leaders, our senior leadership group of which I am one, that will be going back to the office, returning to office on July 6th. There's another group of leaders that will be returning in August. And then we anticipate the majority of our teams coming back to the office after Labor Day, but coming back into jobs um, that look different. Most of our employees will be what we call hybrid which is essentially kind of three days in the office um, and then two days of, of kind of flexible work arrangements. And what I love about that is we didn't just go back to business as usual. I think I've talked to you, Carol, about my biggest fear through COVID and, and racial unrest has been, what if we go back to normal? What if you know the world opens up and we pretend like nothing happened? That would be such a tragedy. And so what I love about our return to office plan at US Bank is we're learning from our experience and we're saying, you know, people can successfully operate from home. There are some people whose jobs in banking need to be, you know, fully on site, especially our, our operations. There are some people in banking whose jobs can be completely remote. And one of the things that we've done at US Bank with an incredible team is go through every single one of our jobs and code them as on-site, fully off-site, or hybrid. And the majority of the team will be hybrid. So I'm actually strangely excited about going back to the office because there's so many things that in-person, you forget the value of those in-person interactions. So uh, while I will miss being in my pajama pants, which I'm in right now with a nice top on and makeup, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm actually looking forward to getting back. And what I like about our stage return at US Bank is we're pulling our top leaders in and saying, you have to set an example. You have to set the way. We're being given resources so that we can provide feedback. We can talk about our experiences. We can share our stories. Um, and so we're taking it gradually. And of course, all of this is contingent upon you know, the safety standards and the CDC standards uh, and the state standards saying where they are today, which who knows what the world is going to look like in six months, Carol. Sure. And who knows what our new fashion is going to look like, <laughs> which is... I yeah. think Yesterday's New York Times said, we're taking our fashion advice from TikTok. Oh, I will say I put on a blazer the other day and I was like, it's so constricting. I can't I know. move. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Maybe that'll, that'll help with a lot of our creativity. So kudos to you on the, on the hybrid, especially being a, a banking and financial services, because I think that we're seeing a little bit more uh, stringent rules on Wall Street which is like you are coming back to work. Let's talk a little bit about mental health and coming back to work because, uh, you know, we've been talking to a lot of clients and friends and they're saying that, you know, you just can't dive back into work that, you know, and you're, you talk so much about listening that providing space for pods of groups, leadership teams, et cetera, just to talk about their experience um, is really, really critical. So curious about, is that being built into your plans at U.S. Bank or is it something you already did, you know, pre-COVID? You know, focus on mental health was something we did pre-COVID, but like everything, I think COVID has catalyzed our focus on the mental health of our employees. And Carol, I think I've, I've talked to you openly about this before. You know, I am a, an, a passionate advocate for removing the stigma of mental health. Uh, my father died by suicide when I was mm. two. We have a oh, long so history sorry. of, 
Thank you. I appreciate that. We have a long history of, um, of mental health um, illness in, in my family. I have diagnosed anxiety. And the reason that I talk about these things is because I think it's really important for us to talk about these things and to acknowledge that everybody in their lives will have a, an episode uh, or a brush with a mental health illness. Um, everybody that I tell my story to says, my brother, my uncle, my mother, myself, my sister, my child is experiencing something. So I think stepping out of the shadows and into the light and really openly talking about mental health issues was important before COVID. And it's only been accelerated by COVID and by this next generation of, of kids. I was talking to my son recently and he said, oh, mom, like almost every kid I know is in needs therapy or is in therapy. And they talk openly about it. They don't whisper, I'm going to see my therapist. They're like, I'm right. going to see my therapist. And everyone <laughs> applauds, you know, yeah. because I think there's just this acknowledgement of it. it. It's just as important as your physical health. You wouldn't not treat a, a giant open wound on your arm. Why are you not treating the problems that you have uh, in, in your head and the thoughts you have racing around your head? So it, it has always been a focus at US Bank, but we're putting even more focus on it. And we're doing that by exactly what you discussed, Carol, openly talking about it and providing resources for our employees. We have an incredible set of resources called LifeWorks. There's a you know 1-800 number that can be called and accessed at any time. We're actually working uh, through LifeWorks to make sure that the person that answers the phone is the right person to handle your concern, especially with issues around equity and race. Um, you know, Through the, the murder of George Floyd and everything our city went through and our country went through and continues to go through, we want to make sure that the person who answers the phone is someone who actually can connect to your lived experience as an employee. Um, and so that's been a keen focus of ours is to do we have the right staff um, to support those kinds of conversations? The other place that a lot of those conversations happen, Carol, is in our business resource groups. So we have many business resource groups across the company. And I will tell you, you know, the one that I'm the closest to um, as a proud Asian American is the Asian American Heritage Group. And with the, the COVID crisis in India, we've held a series of listening sessions with our employees where people talk about their experiences. And it's heartbreaking. You know, people who are in this country who aren't with their loved ones at home and who have lost multiple people to COVID. Um, and so that is another way that we're, we're helping create a safe space for our employees to talk about their issues and the impact that it's having on their mental health is through our business resource group. So I would say we've been doing it, but we are accelerating our efforts and trying to provide even more support because this is such a, a challenging time. And I think it will continue to be. Absolutely. And um, my best wishes to any of your family or friends in India. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it has just been horrific, mm. uh, which is sad, which is very, very sad. Um, let's turn to something a little more uplifting, sure. which has to do. I wanted, I, you know, when you sent, you always send me these great updates. I love getting it's from Mareva and oh, my God, look <laughs> what they're doing now. It's I always stop. I always read them. I do not delete them. Thank um, you. You're welcome. Well, because they're good. They're rich. And anybody else, anybody listening, you should sign up for updates from U.S. Bank because there's such great learning there. Um, let's talk about the new access commitment because that's very, very specific. And where did it come from? What's the size of it? How? And I, I love that it's going to focus on. So talk about the focus and how it's going to work. Yeah, you know, um, when I was thinking about talking to you, Carol, I thought, you know, I get why Carol loves the Access Fund because you know what you and I talk about a lot 
is that the work that we do in corporate social responsibility is not just about philanthropy. It's about leveraging the resources across our companies, human and financial, to help drive the change that we want to see, to help drive equitable outcomes. So the U.S. Bank Access Commitment and specifically the Access Fund are just a way that we brought that idea of bringing the full resources of U.S. Bank to bear against um, some of community's most intractable problems. This This was one of our solutions. So we created, as we thought about increasing access to capital uh, for communities of color, we, we started as we always do with data and insights. And data shows that women of color are the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs and the least funded. So we said, you know, we're a bank. We can do something about that. So we launched this $25 million fund that is focused on women of color led micro businesses with a priority on micro businesses small businesses owned by black women the next level of data we looked at carol was what are the most common barriers in terms of women of color accessing capital and it really is about lack of access and the three things that we heard is there's a lack of access to capital there's a lack of access to technical assistance and there's a lack of access to mentoring. So our US Bank Access Fund is going to address each of these barriers. And I'll, I'll tell you how. First, access to capital. Um, one of the biggest barriers that faces any entrepreneur out there, and especially these women of color-owned micro-businesses. We are providing $20 million in debt capital from our Community Development Corporation, or our CDC, to Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs will deploy loans to micro-businesses owned by women of color. And I think most of your listeners probably know this, and you do, Carol, but a CDFI is just a nonprofit financial institution that focuses primarily on personal lending and business development efforts in underserved communities. So the first element and the biggest element of our fund, $20 million in access to capital. The second is access to technical assistance in the form of $5 million in grants from the U.S. Bank Foundation to build support for capacity building and for networking. And then finally, and I'm really excited about this, we're going to amplify the impact of the fund and provide mentorship and networking. And all in through the US Bank Access Fund over the years, we think we will um, impact approximately 30,000 micro businesses owned by women of color. That's over a three-year period. So we're really excited. We are really excited about this fund. And again, you see, it wasn't just the foundation. It was us working across the bank to say, what is the issue? What are the insights? And what can we do about it using our resources? That's a key learning that when you read your annual report and when you listen, you're talking about across the bank. That's right. That you are not siloed and that you take both the foundation, you take you know business funds and interests and you integrate. And how long did it take to get to that point over the years so that you truly, you know, you're no longer saying, can I? You're saying, how can we? Yeah, you know, Carol, we had a great example in Pullman, which we talked about earlier, um, but Pullman wasn't happening across the bank. So I want to say it was probably three years ago, Carol, where I met with the head of the CDC, our Community Development Corporation, Zach Boyers, and Greg Cunningham, our chief diversity officer. And this trinity kind of came together to say, we're all doing the work of social impact. 
And by the way, social impact is happening across the bank. But how do we pull it together? And we conducted an agile sprint, which was relatively new. I think we were the first non-product agile sprint that happened across the bank. And we said, you know, what is it that we want to get done over the next three, five, 10 years in the space of social impact? We created a couple of priorities. We took some partners. And then the really smart thing that we did back then, Carol, was we built it into US Bank's strategic plan. Because you know how companies operate, right? Your strategic plan is reviewed by the board of directors. There's a scorecard. And there's accountability. So once it's in the strategic plan, it gets done. It gets measured. It gets reported on. So back then, we we input the social impact strategy. We built it into a chapter of our strategic plan. And that's what really started the momentum to really drive social impact and measurement of social impact and initiatives to create social impact across the bank. I will also tell you there was a pivotal moment for us. After George Floyd's murder, we promoted... Greg Cunningham, our chief diversity officer, to be a direct report of our CEO and to join U.S. Bank's managing committee. That further accelerated our efforts because Greg has a seat at literally the table. He's in the room where it happens and is able to talk about how issues of equity can be activated across the enterprise. So I would say the sprint, the the sprint was where it started. Building it into the strategic plan was where it became part of kind of our legacy and became part of our operations. And then Greg's elevation to the managing committee just further catalyzed um, our, our focus on driving equity across the bank. I'm curious, when Greg was promoted into the C-suite and reporting to Andy, did you get any feedback from some of your constituents? It was just like, why didn't you do this earlier? You know, I think there was a natural amount of skepticism. As Carol, I think there should be. You know, people saying, why now? And, oh, this is just, you know, this is just PR. This is just U.S. Bank trying to say, you know, look at us and look at what we're doing. Um, so there was definitely some some blowback. But... I think that blowback has been quieted by the the reality of what Greg has been able to do um, in in a you know in less than a year in his job. The access commitment that we announced was really Greg working across the enterprise with his fellow managing committee members, getting things done, thinking about every part of the bank and how could we activate every part of the bank to help close racial wealth gaps, starting with the racial wealth gaps in our Black communities. And so to anyone out there who who is questioning, you know, why didn't we do it sooner? I'll say um, the, the time was right. I mean, all of the issues that George Floyd's murder and all of the civil unrest and the conversations we're having today, these are not new issues. They're 400 plus years old. But what George Floyd's murder in our hometown market led us to was an increased focus in the boardroom on what we could be doing. And having Greg sitting at the table in the boardroom when all those conversations were happening just accelerated our efforts. So for anybody who questions, you know, was it just a PR stunt? Look at what we've been able to accomplish and then um, understand, hopefully you'll understand that this was not about a public relations move. This was about doing the right thing. Which was your core value. That's right. Core lead, your core lead value. That's right. Let's pause from our conversation with Reba and turn to our In The Know segment this week.
so excited to share with you some research from McKinsey. It's called the Growth Triple Play. And this was amazing data that also continues to prove the power of purpose to help generate multiple times revenues in a company versus its peers. So let me give you the background. In the process of studying more than 860 executives, McKinsey uncovered three elements, creativity, analytics, and purpose that they are calling the growth triple play. While many companies have generated growth by using one of these three capabilities, McKinsey found that those who have successfully used creativity, analytics, plus purpose, the triple play, in tandem, have achieved up to 2.7 times the average revenue of their peers. Purpose plus analytics plus creativity. Each element of this triple play is crucial as they turn out to be mutually reinforcing. Linking purpose to creativity and analytics helps companies recognize the opportunities they are go- that are going to resonate most deeply with stakeholders, especially customers and employees. Think about this. The analytics help to uncover the intentions and the insights of a specific stakeholder group that then can be put through a lens of purpose and then creative. Again, analytics gives you the insights, then you put it through the lens of purpose, and then you add the creative, and that gets you the triple play. McKinsey also said, that C-suite leaders, they're leaning mostly into marketing heads. But I also believe that chief communications officers and talent leadership all can take this growth triple play to heart. And they're encouraged to, as individuals, act as a unifier to create strategic alliances across the entire C-suite internally, across departments, and outside with specialists to become, this is really important, strategic integrators sitting at the intersection of talent, technology, strategy, and communication. Use purpose, the true North Star of the organization, to rally stakeholders, attract and retain talent, and sculpt the product and brand strategy and then insert the triple play into the company culture. So in doing these one, two, and three things, and McKinsey said it's not easy. They felt that only perhaps 7 to 10% of the companies that they studied have been using all three in tandem. But when you can do, imagine, you can get almost three times greater revenue than your peers. So go online, search for McKinsey and the Growth Triple Play. It's a fascinating article. It has so much for us to learn. And again, it shows the power of purpose when it is used in combination with analytics and creativity to drive the growth of an organization. It's strategic and powerful. Now let's get back to our conversation with Reba.
I am curious about since Tulsa had its its hundredth anniversary, and I am a well educated person, and it, it wasn't until probably six months ago that I started learning about Tulsa. I am curious. Do you have branches there, and um, and did you get involved with it at all? And if you don't have branches, I'm just curious about. Um, you know, I didn't hear gigantic commitments to like rebuilding Tulsa. Um, so I'm just curious. You know, I, I have to look, Carol. I am not sure if we have U.S. Bank branches in Tulsa um, or in Oklahoma. But if we do, what I would tell you is that I'm sure the local market got involved uh, and was activated. Um, and that's how we kind of uh, we activate is always locally. Uh, this is it would not have necessarily you know been a, a national activation, but I'm sure the local leaders um, were part of conversations and will continue to be part of conversations around um, rebuilding. And I will say that is a very intentional conversation we're, happen- we're having at US Bank, not necessarily just around Tulsa, but even you know in, in the Twin Cities after George Floyd was murdered and the civil unrest, uh, we lost three of our branches. They were destroyed. Right. And one of the things we did, Carol, in those series of announcements we made immediately following was we led with the fact that we were not leaving those communities. You know, there are a lot of businesses that will have something like that happen. And for various reasons, we'll say we're not coming back. Well, we have rebuilt two of the branches uh, that were destroyed. And the third, we actually donated the land for... It's a fantastic piece of property for uh, multi-use development. We actually have an RFP that's out right now with developers looking at all of the different things we can do in that space. And we're rebuilding our branch about six blocks away where there's even greater access for our customers and communities to that branch space. So what I can say about US Bank is we're committed to the communities where we currently have uh, employees where we've got branches, where we have uh, services, um, and we're not going away from communities where, um, you know, we're not walking away from communities where there is risk. Um, we also have, you know, through our digital um, portfolio, we have so many different ways now that our customer is accessing our products and our services and our experiences. In fact, I think the latest I heard was that it's something like over 70%, maybe 75% of our customers are now accessing us digitally. I digitally, think yeah. about how much that has changed the landscape of banking over the last several years. I'm curious about what sort of coalition building, if any, took place in Minneapolis. I mean, you have amazing companies there. You've got Medtronic, you've got Target, you've got Carlson, and many, many others. And you probably had your leadership and and other senior teams coming together and saying, what are we going to do next? Yeah, you know, Carol, two of the the most powerful coalitions that I'm involved with uh, that I think are going to change the landscape of our community. The first is um, one that was called the Alliance of Alliances. And it was a group of leaders um, across our region coming together to say, if we really want different outcomes, we have to do things differently. And the realization that we had about doing things differently was in order to improve outcomes for Black Minnesotans, the solutions have to be generated by Black Minnesotans for Black Minnesotans, supported 
by all of us. And so the Alliance of Alliances partnered with an organization called ALF, the African American Leadership Forum. Uh, the CEO of ALF, the executive director, is named Marcus Owens, and he's a he's a brilliant guy. And what Marcus and his team have done is created a process of Black-centered design thinking. So you likely know all about design thinking. Sure. But they have actually created this process um, focused on input from, feedback from, and solutions generated by Black leaders, Black community members with lived experience. And so the community got together pretty quickly and raised, I want to say, a little over $4 million very, very quickly to support ALF in kind of standing up this Black-centered design concept to really drive a different approach for this region to help close some of the economic wealth gaps that we have, which are some of the worst in the country, the achievement gaps, you know, all of these things. And in Minnesota, we pride ourselves on being so good at so many things, and we are, but we have so much work to do when it comes to equitably serving diverse populations, especially our Black population and our, our indigenous population as well. So the Alliance of Alliances was one coalition. The other that I have to mention that actually I'm really involved with, I'm one of the co-chairs and I'm a steering committee of a group called the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity or MBCRE. You can check it out at mbcre.org or it might be mbcre.com. It's .com. Okay. And uh, <laughs> this organization that we formed um, essentially formed kind of organically uh, where chief diversity officers after George Floyd were was murdered were talking to each other and saying, we should come together. And all the CSR leads were doing the same thing. And then the government affairs leads across our companies were doing the same thing. And there was a group of us that just said, why, why don't we do this together? And so right now we have a coalition of about 80 companies across our region, big companies, Companies like the ones you've mentioned, General Mills, U.S. Bank, Target, Medtronic, 3M, but also a lot of mid-sized and small companies who are saying, we want to be part of this journey. We want to do things differently. We have four pillars. We have an allyship pillar, a workplace pillar, a philanthropy pillar, and a policy pillar. But the magic really happens when those pillars work together. And we have a very simple stated outcome at MBCRE. And that is to improve the lives of Black Minnesotans, that our commitment is to do things differently. So the connection between those two coalitions, the Alliance of Alliances, the African-American Leadership Forum, and the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity is strong. Marcus Owens, who leads ALF, is one of our steering committee members. And so we think the combination of Black-centered design thinking and different solutions, which then can be elevated to the corporations sitting at the table at MBCRE to activate is going to be a really powerful combination to drive change in our region. I love that. Talk to our listeners why joining these types of coalitions is important. Yeah, you know, coalitions are hard. Let me start with that. <laughs> uh, they, they can be really hard because, you know, you have an agenda, you have things you need to do, you have a busy day, you have your own goals and objectives, and um, it's a full-time job just to do the work that you do. But the, the beauty of a coalition is you get to do that with others and you get to listen and learn from them. I'll give you a really good example, uh, Carol. When we announced our $15 million rebuild and transform grants, 
we spent a lot of time listening to the community to understand what was really needed. We wanted to hear from those with lived experience around what's really needed to both rebuild communities primarily through small business and then also to really get at the heart of changing systems so that they help people and they don't hurt people. And you know the work of systems change is tireless and it's hard. And for corporate America, it's especially hard because results don't come in a month or a year. They come 10 years down the line. Um, but we, we talked to a lot of people and we put together what I consider a best-in-class approach to investing dollars in a community to drive equitable outcomes. Well, then I joined the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity, and I co-lead the philanthropy pillar alongside an amazing leader called Shannon Smith-Jones. She leads Hope Communities. And Shannon and the coalition have taught me so much about how to operationalize equity into our institutions. So, you know, we were good at the first 15 million and let's get this done and let's do things differently. And then, you know, we could have gone back to business as usual, but I had a group of coalition leaders and philanthropists standing by my side saying, this can't be one and done. We actually have to think about how do we do this in our day-to-day -day operations? We started looking at our, our, um, our grant um, requirements and our measurement requirements. And we realized that all of these companies, we give out a $50,000 grant, we give out a $5 million grant. We ask for different information from every nonprofit and we ask for different measurement from every nonprofit. Well, for some small organizations, small nonprofits, especially those that are black led, that's a small percentage in our community that is really onerous. Uh, programmatic grants versus gen ops, you know, all of these fascinating conversations. And what's great about the coalition is all the big companies can go back with learnings and so can all the medium and the small companies. And we can all say, in order to operationalize equity into our grant making, here are the three things that we need to do. And when you have 80 companies doing three things differently, you can actually change systems. So that's what's so powerful about joining coalitions. They're a lot of work. They're a lot of time, but they are so worth it. You should write the book about that. I should. You should. You should. Um, I, I know that uh, in some of my speeches, I was looking for great coalitions and I found one. It was the Deep South Economic Coalition and it was the Hope Credit Union um, at Goldman Sachs. 10,000 small businesses, yes. seven HBCUs, yes. Um, seven cities, so in the deep south, and then three philanthropies. And they came together and they raised $130 million in cash, in mentoring, and in systems and such. So, you know, I always say to our clients and also to anybody who will listen, that coalitions, to your point, they're hard but if they come together for the right reasons, they have tremendous learnings and best practices. Absolutely. And I think that the challenges we have today are so difficult that um, we do have to come together. Hey, I want to give you a shout out and kudos. And you may or may not know anything about this, but I was looking in your annual report um, and I just, you know, about your commitment to solar. Mm. Do, do you? Oh, you have a huge commitment to solar. I do know that. <laughs> As a leader of environmental strategy, I do. Right. But I'm going to give a lot of credit to our Community Development Corporation, who has been really leading a significant investment in solar power, um, which has allowed us to do so many important things like achieving our first greenhouse gas gas emission reduction target years ahead of schedule. Um, so again, 
Carol, it's a great example of none of these achievements, none of the progress we've made at the bank ever comes from one organization. It's when we pool our efforts across the bank and say, you know, this solar business is important. It's good for the planet. And by the way, it's profitable. So let's get our resources together and really invest uh, wisely across the bank. Um, And again, you know, it's proof of you can do things in corporate America that are good for people, good for the planet and good for your business. And you didn't pay me to say that. Um, The company, (laughs) U.S. Bank, has has invested um, almost 11 billion uh, since 2011. And that is supporting 15 percent of all U.S. solar investments, which is kind of interesting because you go Minnesota, you know, a lot of gray clouds and snow, (laughs) not like California, Arizona, but. Um, very, very uh, you know, fortuitous and and smart for you. Well, I want to ask you about Juneteenth before we close. What mm, did you do yes. for Juneteenth? And also, obviously, you had George Floyd's anniversary, which was you know, so the, you know, and then they were a month apart. So tell me what what the bank did. We announced um, that our branches would be closed on Juneteenth, which was just this last Saturday, and then we gave all employees um, the the day as now it has been named a federal holiday. So, you know, in banking, we have a handful of days that are days where the bank shuts down and all of our employees get the day off. And Juneteenth is, I'm very proud to say, uh, one of those holidays. Um, It is an important time for all of us uh, to reflect on um, uh, the significance um, of the end of slavery and how much work need remains to be done. You know, I always struggle a little bit, Carol, with the celebratory part of it, which is incredibly important, balanced against uh, recommitting to, you know, the the work that needs to be done um, to address uh, social justice in this country. Um, With the anniversary of uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, the heaviness of the trial, that moment where those verdicts were read, which mm. honestly, I didn't know if I was going to make it through right. the reading of those verdicts. We actually at U.S. Bank um, de- decided not on the anniversary uh, because it was such a somber anniversary to do anything other than um, continue to focus on our efforts. Again, like I said at the beginning, you know, Andy Cesari, our CEO, is is not necessarily about the words; it's about the actions. So, what we are doing, and I think it will happen over the next couple of weeks, Carol, is actually communicating the results of all of the commitments that we made last year in June um, as a company, and we're talking about progress made. And by the way, we've met all of our commitments, which is fantastic, and I'm very proud of it. We're talking about lessons learned because not everything that we did happened exactly the way that we thought it would. And then we're talking about our priorities going forward because, again, this was not a one and done. This was not a George Floyd was murdered in our hometown market. We'll make a one-year commitment and then we're out. This is a lifelong commitment to equity across U.S. Bank. And so when you see those announcements, which I will share with you via one of my email blasts. Do do that um, and we'll put it in the show notes. I will. Absolutely. I will. That would be great. Yeah, you'll see an infographic that shows, you know, again, what we've accomplished. But you're also going to see some levels of 
of doubling down and recommitment um, because U.S. Bank is is in this for for the long haul. Now we have to like, unfortunately, end our conversation. But again, I will give it back to you in terms of, you know, what haven't we asked? I mean, it has been an amazing year and plus since we last chatted. So um, a lesson learned because you've given a lot to our listeners, um, something you're most proud of, your challenges going forward. That's by another entire podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. There are two quotes that I've probably used on your podcast before, but they really guide so much of what I prioritize, uh, what I lead, the way I lead at the bank. You know, one is the uh, fabulous um, Maya Angelou. She is uh, she is my spiritual guide and leader. I turn to her often, especially in times of strife. Um, you know, my favorite Maya Angelou quote is, once you know better than you do better. And I think that's just a really simple way to say, when you learn, when you listen to, you know, a Purpose 360 podcast and something strikes you, you know, don't just write it down and put it in your file folder or in a phone note. Think about what you're going to do differently as a result of the data, the insights, what you learn. So I always turn to Mother Maya um, in these times to say, once you know better, then do better. And if all of us do just a little bit better every day and we learn just a little bit more, we can change the trajectory of social justice in this country. And then the last quote that I will share is the one that brought me to the work of corporate social responsibility. It was hanging on my mother's kitchen wall when I was five years old eating my Cheerios. Uh, And the quote is Rabindranath Tagore. And the quote is, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and found that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. And so often in this work, Carol, I find we get caught up in the numbers. We get stressed by what's Bank of America doing? What's JP Morgan Chase doing? And why aren't I doing it? You know, there's so many moments of stress and tension in this work. But I always like to bring people back to the joy. We are so blessed and privileged to do what we do, Carol. And so come back to the joy at the end of every day, at the beginning of every day, when you find a free moment, just get all the numbers and the stress out of your head. And remember that we are so blessed to do this work because we get to use the resources of our corporations, human and financial, to make the world better for people and the planet. And that is the best possible job I could have and the best possible job I could think of. So come back to the joy in this work. It is it is profoundly impactful and joyful work. That's beautiful. Come back to the joy. I think that's a really great point, especially during these days, because things are going so fast. And um, you're right. You have to take a moment, you know, like before I go to sleep, I go, okay, what did I accomplish today? Because I get so frustrated if I don't move things forward. And I think coming back to the joy and it can be really, really simple. And so I think that that is great. We're going to leave that with our listeners. And that also works really well because I've changed the ending of the podcast. And so it used to be, what is your purpose? But now I will ask our listeners, what is the power of your purpose? I love it. (laughs) 